Welcome, It's All Relative listeners. Are you ready for Jeffrey McDonald to be tried for the murders? It took nine years and five other episodes to get him prosecuted, and we are finally there. So sit back, get ready. Here's Bob Dylan and the band to get things rolling. Say every man needs protection They say that every man must fall But I swear I see my reflection Somewhere so high above this wall I do apologize, guys. I know that was a little bit longer than I usually go for in an intro, but it was so pertinent. I had to let it run that long. I know we are on episode six, and most of you have not gone over this case to the point where you could win a game of trivia in your sleep, unlike me. So I will try to give some reminders as I continue this tragic saga. I wish I were being totally facetious about the cliche, but I'm not. This case is an all-consuming tragedy play. We have, for lack of a better differential diagnosis, a sociopath who took advantage of a, by all accounts, sweet girl using her as part of his narcissistic beard. If that paragraph confuses you, I will put it in common speech. Jeff McDonald is a predator with a big ego who used Colette to make him look good to the wider world. After roughly six years of marriage and the birth of two adorable little girls, All the females were murdered, and old Jeff got away with a slightly more critical than minor wound and a shitload of sympathy from pretty much everyone. Green Beret Captain Jeff McDonald alleged that four people entered his home and attacked his family. Army CID didn't believe him and proceeded in the first steps towards a court-martial, an Article 32 hearing. Unfortunately, the investigation was riddled with errors, mostly caused by first responders who were either not properly trained in forensic techniques or were just flat-out incompetent. The Article 32 determined there wasn't enough evidence to charge McDonald and released him. Time went on. The investigation continued, and Jeffrey McDonald was up before a grand jury in 1974. The conclusion of which is where the last episode of this podcast ended. McDonald was formally charged with the murders of his wife and children, 
But instead of going to trial, a series of appeals followed by decisions, followed by appeals, followed by decisions, etc. occurred. It took five years to get the indictment into a courtroom to be tried. Unfortunately, the bulldog who had prosecuted McDonald during the grand jury hearing, Victor Warheide, had died of a heart attack in October of 1975. The case was handed to one Jim Blackburn, and he had never been involved in a murder trial. Jeffrey McDonald's defense team rented out a frat house to live in while the trial was underway. Also living with the defense was Joe McGinnis, the journalist and author with which Jeff McDonald had transacted to write his story. Bernie Siegel is aware of the cultural differences between a flashy Hollywood doctor and the average person from North Carolina, and takes some steps to narrow that gap. He counsels McDonald about his clothing, removing the excess of gold, and being careful of what outfit he chooses to wear when in court. Regardless of precautions, the judge, one Franklin Dupree, took a dislike of Bernie Siegel in particular, and was prone to rolling his eyes whenever Siegel voiced his thoughts in any form, and this happened a lot. Much of the evidence given in trial we have already covered in the previous five episodes. However, there are several differences. The first being, no psychological or psychiatric testimony was allowed. In an attempt to show, once again, that Jeff is just not the type to violently murder his family, Siegel sent Jeff to a Beverly Hills hypnotist and wanted to show the tape session to the jury. Siegel argued extensively for the evidence to be allowed to the jury. In the video, McDonald lives through the attack and murders once again, narrating the whole thing. He even gives much more detailed descriptions of the men allegedly involved in the attack, and I don't think he likes Italians. He goes through all the motions, including both times he tried to resuscitate all the members of the family, giving his touching words to his wife on his final circuit to help his slaughtered family. Quote from Fatal Vision, I hugged her. I told her the kids will be okay. I'm kneeling next to her. I want to see if her chest looks as bad as I first saw it. I put the pajama top back. I decide to check the kids one more time. I've got to check. Kimmy. Kimmy is my little girl. I've got to go see her. Kimmy is limp. Kimmy looks terrible. I pick her up. My left hand is under her shoulder, picking her up. My right arm is under her neck. I give Kimmy mouth to mouth. It doesn't feel right. The air must be escaping. I can't help her. I check her for moral pulse. There is no pulse. I pick up her bedclothes and lay them on her and go see Christy. I have to see Christy. Christy has got to be okay. The emotional impact of the tape, particularly on those not intimately familiar with the facts of the case against McDonald, was overwhelming. If he is guilty, the psychiatrist said, he deserves an Academy Award. End quote. I have not seen this video, but one thing I have come to know about Jeffrey McDonald is that he is a very good actor when he wants to be. Maybe he does deserve that Oscar. Judge Dupree does not let the tape be shown. I wonder if Siegel would have done better to find a hypnotist closer to Raleigh. But Dupree's reasoning is that the insanity offense is not being put forward, so there's no reason to hear any testimony about McDonald's comportment or state of mind. The second bit of evidence that we haven't really discussed as yet is McDonald's blue pajama top. The ice pick holes in McDonald's PJ top were outlined for the court. In the first episode, when Ivory pulled the pajama top off Colette, he noticed a large amount of holes in the top. And fearing McDonald would be near death, due to the assumption that the same number of holes were in him, he sent an agent immediately over to the hospital to see if he could get McDonald's testimony. The hospital quickly determined that McDonald did not have many stab wounds, and this prompted investigators to figure out how those holes got in the top without those holes being in Jeffrey McDonald. 
Investigators sent the top and crime scene photos to FBI lab analyst Paul Stombaugh. Stombaugh testified in front of the grand jury and at the trial. His determination was that, quote, that the cuts made in the pajamas worn by Colette, Kimberly, and Krista McDonald had been made by the sharp, straight, old hickory knife and not the dull, bent Geneva forge knife. That the cuts in Jeffrey McDonald's torn blue pajama top had been made by the Geneva forge knife. That no cut in the pajama top corresponded to the location of the chest wound which had caused the puncture in Jeffrey McDonald's right lung. That the pajama top had been torn down the left front seam and down the left sleeve in a manner which indicated that someone standing in front of Jeffrey McDonald had ripped it as he spun away, and not, as he had told investigators, that it had either been torn over his back as he fought with intruders, or that he had torn it from his wrists himself as he had entered the master bedroom. That the top had been stained by Colette McDonald's blood in at least four locations before it had been torn. That the 48 puncture holes in the pajama top were perfectly round, with no tearing around the edges, indicating that they had been made while the top was stationary, and not while McDonald was using it as a shield to fend off an ice pick wielding intruder. That when pajama top was folded as near as possible to the way it was folded on top of the body at the time of the photographs were taken, 21 holes were discernible in the top layer of the garment, and that these fell into a grouping, 16 on the left side and 5 on the right, which was consistent with the grouping of 16 ice pick holes in the left and 5 on the right side of Colette McDonald's chest. And further, that the remaining holes in the garment would be aligned with those top 21 in a manner which indicated it would have been possible for someone to have made all 48 with 21 thrusts of an ice pick, the same thrust that had made the ice pick holes in Colette's chest. End quote. To be clear, four weapons were used in the murders. Two knives, an ice pick, and a plank of wood. One knife was found on the floor in the master bedroom. You would assume that that would be the knife which Jeff said he pulled from Colette's chest. Nope. It was determined it was the other knife which made the wounds in Colette. The remaining three weapons were discovered just outside the back door. The plank is most often referred to as a club and to a lesser amount as a board. I think this is really important because McDonald insists this was a club, often also insisting that he had figured out it was a baseball bat. And the black male to my left raised something, and he swung a club at me, and I threw my hand up, and he hit me in the head with a club, which I took to be a baseball bat. All of a sudden, in this struggle, I'm trying to push these people away and get up at the same time. I finally got my left leg on the floor, and that gave me a little leverage, and I started to move forward, and I finally grabbed the black male's arm as he swung it, and he kept jerking his arm away, to pull the weapon away, and my hand kept sliding down on the weapon, which is how I know it was a baseball bat. Remember that? That's a replay of the portion of that interview with Larry King in a 2003 episode. The weapon was actually determined by forensics to be the 1.5 by 1.5 by 31 inch piece of wood, and determined that that plank was similar to the slats on the beds. Threads from the pajama top were also found on this plank. This is what McDonald said about the weapons in one of the early interrogations. Quote, he said he was absolutely certain that neither of the two paring knives nor the ice pick had come from his house, though the club might have come from a pile of scrap lumber he had kept in the backyard. He repeated that he had never owned an ice pick. End quote. All three sharp weapons had been seen in the McDonald's kitchen. This fact had been testified to in court by neighbors. Jeffrey McDonald continued to deny owning an ice pick. And for those of you that have no memory of the 60s and 70s, the need for ice picks was waning by the early 1970s, but they were still really, really practical. Many freezers did not have a self-defrost function, and old ice trays were made of metal. 
making removal of the ice a bit of a chore. There really was no reason for him to deny owning something that was in probably 80% of the homes in the United States. The third item to appear in the trial we have not yet discussed is the blood typing. The murders took place in 1970 and the trial is happening in 1979. This means no one has even heard of DNA. But all four members of the McDonald family had different blood types. And if you're wondering, this is not common but not uncommon. Four different blood types meant that investigators could track where a person was in the house by what blood was where. And the evidence suggests that not everyone was where Donald says they were. And for those of you who wonder about intruders that may have had the same blood type McDonald's, you have a point. The only thing I would add to this is, remember, although it was a very bloody scene, the blood was mostly confined to the immediate area where the bodies were found. And it is possible, but highly unlikely, that multiple assailants would leave blood in so localized an area. One of the main drawbacks to this line of investigation is that they did not really use blood pattern analysis to determine anyone's movements. We hear that so-and-so's blood was found in this or that place, and the prosecution uses that to form a theory of what happened. But some of their theory doesn't quite add up, and some of those theories will be addressed as we go on with this discussion. In addition to the blood, fibers from McDonald's pajama top, not trace mine, but actual threads, were found in his daughter's beds, critically under his children, and fibers were found under the body of his wife. Yes, these may have gotten there innocently enough, but McDonald's account does not allow for an innocent explanation. Maybe for one of these instances, but not all of them. Okay, the fourth thing that comes up in the trial is Helena Stokely, yet again. This is the woman Siegel and McDonald say is the woman in the white hat. She plays a much bigger part in the trial. In fact, a bench warrant is issued for her to appear as a material witness. Helena had not gotten clean since 1970. She didn't remember quite a lot from her life. Some of her memories sounded more like drug-fueled hallucinations. She had been in a psychiatric facility in 1971 and diagnosed a paranoid schizophrenic. Her mother said, quote, She's had her gallbladder removed, she's had three liver biopsies, and she's been spitting up blood and passing blood in her stools for years. She's not at all like she used to be. She's a physical and mental wreck. She's not even a human being anymore. You'll find her now. Sure, she'll talk. She'll always talk. But I'm telling you, she's gonna talk all kinds of nonsense. I really believe it was Beasley who first put the idea in her head. Beasley was her daddy image. He had a terrific amount of influence over her. She told me he had been up to talk to her right after it happened. And then she said, yeah, I've been thinking, and I don't really know where I was that night. I might have been there. And I just know right then that Daddy Beasley had talked her into it. End quote. If you think back to when she was first mentioned, Helena, I said she had been a police informant. Beasley was her police contact, uh, and I do wonder what the relationship really was there. I'm not suggesting impropriety, but I do think she was out to please him by giving him arrests, and he definitely used that. The city police officer named Prince Beasley claimed that Helena fit this description. I had seen Helena on many occasions with these other people that uh, Dr. McDonald gave the description of. The night following the murder, I stayed out of Helena's house. I knew she had to come back sometime. About 2 o'clock, maybe 2.30, this car pulled into the driveway. 
Stokely was in, and all these guys that um, Dr. McDonald had to be described. I bluntly asked her, I said, I know you've heard about the murders at Fort Bragg. The descriptions that you did perfect. Were you there? Answer yes or no. She told me that she was on drugs, but yes, she thought she was there. Bruce Beasley called my office, so I made it a point to go down and talk to him. When I got down there, she was there. I interviewed her and found no leads at all. Absolutely no information that would tie her to the case. And that was from the documentary, A Wilderness of Error. It's actually a really good treatment of the case, but we'll talk more on that later. Helena was found in South Carolina, and a U.S. Marshal drove her to Raleigh. She was questioned by each side for several hours before even testifying. She denied any memory of the murders or any memory of having admitted anything to various people over the years. Siegel even brought in several of these people to try and get her to admit something. Anything. On the stand, Helena, quote, described the extent of her narcotics addiction during the early months of 1970. She had been injecting heroin and liquid opium intravenously six to seven times per day. She had also smoked marijuana and hashish on a daily basis, had consumed LSD almost daily, and mescaline about twice a week, in addition to using barbiturates and angel dust. On Monday, February 16, 1970, she had followed her usual pattern of drug consumption, topping it off with a tablet of mescaline given to her in a driveway by a soldier from Fort Bragg named Greg. She recalled re-entering her apartment after having consumed the mescaline, but said she remembered nothing after that until her return to the apartment about 4.30 or 5 a.m. in a blue car with two or three soldiers from Fort Bragg. She said she could recall neither the owner of the car nor any of the other passengers. This was by no means the startling testimony for which Bernie Siegel had been hoping. It seemed, in fact, actively harmful to his case. Siegel lost further ground when, on cross-examination, Jim Blackboard extracted from Stokely the remark that she had worn her blonde wig infrequently and that she had not been wearing it on the night of Monday, February 16th, because Greg, who had given her the mescaline, did not like it. End quote. Siegel was beyond frustrated. He had hoped for a Perry Mason moment and instead dug more of a hole for his client. He attempted to mitigate her testimony by putting on the stand all those same people that she had purportedly confessed to. There is a quite heated argument between attorneys in the judge's chamber about this. Judge Dupree takes the weekend to decide. Helena arrived to the court with her arm in a cast and her fiancé, whom she had met in rehab, by her side. The arm was broken in a dispute over drugs. The fiancé took the opportunity of the court's recess to try and drown Helena in their hotel pool. This woman's life was absolutely tragic. Upon return to the court on Monday, Judge Dupree was obviously unhappy at having lost his weekend to researching the decision. I do love his subtle snark in his reasoning. Quote, I will rule, he continued, that these proposed statements do not comply with the trustworthy requisites of 804b3. In fact, far from being clearly corroborated and trustworthy, they are about as unclearly trustworthy, or clearly untrustworthy, let me say, as any statements that I have ever seen or heard. This witness, in her examination and cross-examination here in court, has been, to use the government counsel's terminology, all over the lot. 
The statements which he has made out of court were all over the lot. Also, so it can't really be said that the hearing of those statements would lead to any different conclusion than what the jurors got while she was here in open court. This testimony, I think, has no trustworthiness at all. Here you have a girl who, when she made the statements, was, in most instances, heavily drugged, if not hallucinating. And she has told us that herself. She has stated that in person. I think that this evidence would tend to confuse the issues, mislead the jury, cause undue delay, and be a waste of time. She has already told this jury everything that you propose to show by these witnesses. I am thoroughly convinced in my own mind that your position is without merit with respect to this particular evidence. I have ruled on it, and as I say, I did not reach that lightly because I am risking a terrible lot of judge time and juror time down the road if I make an error and it has to be retried. But I am confident in my position on this one. And incidentally, Mr. Siegel, I'm glad you mentioned it because I had neglected to tell you. Just completely overlooked it, but I want you to know that among others called by Helena, she called me twice on Saturday night, stating that she was living in mortal dread of physical harm by Bernard Siegel, counsel for the defendant and that she wanted a lawyer to represent her, end quote. Siegel is pretty good at handling his client, because Jeff McDonald did not have a good reaction to this. But I got the impression that Bernie thinks they're losing. He preps Jeff to testify. Jeff is his lovely shithead self and says some things I cannot bring myself to repeat. Siegel specifically tells Jeff to cool the attitude. Siegel's reasoning for having McDonald take the stand is not given, Normally, this is a bad idea, to have the defendant take the stand. From how Siegel coaches Jeff, I'm thinking this is a last-ditch effort to humanize him. Jeff takes the stand, and it is an epic trip down memory lane, the end of which half of the courtroom is in tears, including Judge Dupree. And then he's cross-examined. Quote, Despite all warnings, and even with his entire future hanging in the balance, Jeffrey McDonald was unable to control the caustic, bitter strain that ran so deep within him. Even Jim Blackburn's softest, most inoffensive questions and Blackburn's manner, in contrast to Victor Warheide's booming intimidation of five years earlier, sometimes bordered on the almost differential, met with a cutting, acerbic response. This prickly, touchy, hostile witness, so easily irritated, so quick to flash to the point of anger, bore little resemblance to the broken, saddened, grieving survivor who had brought tears to the juror's eyes the day before. Despite having had nine and a half years to prepare for the occasion, MacDonald seemingly could not prevent himself from adopting the one mode of behavior likely to do him the most harm. End quote. The trial took seven weeks. The prosecution's theory was that Colette had come home from her class that night and had said something to her imperious husband probably something she had learned or decided after attending the class, maybe even refused to back down on her decision. MacDonald, used to getting his own way, had lashed out at her, and by the time his rage subsided, Colette was dead. Kimberly was also dead or unconscious from the attack. The prosecution supposed that he had hit her by accident when she had come to see what was happening to her mother. MacDonald thinks of running. That's why there is an empty suitcase on the floor on top of the blood. But something makes him stop. He remembers the Manson killings that he had read in the Esquire magazine just a few days previous. He thumbs through the account to refresh his memory, and he decides that he could just pull it off. He could blame it all on hippies. He just had to make it look like the ones in the magazine. So he stabbed the already dead Colette and Kimberly to make it look like multiple slashers were involved. And the worst part is that he actually stabbed Kristen to death to complete the charade. 
This is one of those didn't-quite-fit explanations. More Heidi actually believed McDonald sat on her bed, lay Kristen on his lap, and then stabbed her. Kristen had defense wounds to her hands. She was alive when he started. McDonald could not have stabbed her and held her down if she was on his lap. She would most likely have wiggled away, or he would have stabbed himself, probably in the leg. In addition, the blood in her room was on the bed, and there was no void in the pattern suggesting someone sat there. There is a void on either side of her body that could suggest he straddled her to pin her down. All this is complete conjecture at this point, and a bit moot, but it is a frustrating bit of unanswered question not solved by the prosecution. The jury is sent to deliberate. The defense, minus Bernie Siegel and his co-counsel Wade Smith, is celebrating. There is a guitar. McDonald's secretary is making dinner reservations for Jeff and his girlfriend. The attorneys suspect they've lost. At the six-and-a-half-hour mark, they are informed that the jury has come back. A verdict has been reached. Quote, The first juror to walk through the door was the ex-Green Beret. His head was down and he was crying. He was followed almost immediately by the woman whose son was a member of Kappa Alpha. Her head was down and she was crying too. Then there was a pause, which seemed long, though maybe it was only 10 or 15 seconds, before the third juror came through the door. But it didn't matter. It wouldn't have mattered if the pause had lasted an hour. Not only Jeffrey McDonald and Bernie Siegel and Wade Smith and McDonald's mother and his secretary and the friends who had flown in from California, but Jim Blackburn and Brian Murtaugh and in the first row on the right side of the aisle, Freddie and Mildred Kassab, knew what was coming. An ex-Green Beret who had just voted to acquit another ex-Green Beret of three murder charges does not walk into the courtroom in tears. McDonald was found guilty of second-degree murder in the deaths of Colette and Kimberly and guilty of murder in the first degree because the jury believed it to have been a calculated act designed to support his cover story in the death of his younger daughter, Kristen. Judge Dupree sentenced him to three life terms in prison to be served not concurrently but consecutively. It was the harshest sentence he could administer, the death penalty not being applicable under federal law. End quote. Joe McGinnis begins his association with Jeff McDonald on friendly terms and soon comes to call him an actual friend. In the course of the trial, since he had full access to everything the defense did, he came to believe that Jeff McDonald did indeed kill his family. But he had a hard time reconciling that belief with the man he knew. When he seriously began writing the book, Fatal Vision, he continued to correspond with McDonald and McDonald gave him access to his condo, which is where McGinnis stayed during the writing process. It is through this more in-depth knowledge of Jeff that he understood more about his psyche. The trip to Aruba never happened, boxing team trip to Russia didn't exist, and the access to Jeff's condo revealed a diary of sorts that Jeff started keeping just after the murders. That's where McGinnis learned about the Escatrol. In a previous episode of this pod, I mentioned that McDonald was part of an Escatrol trial through the army. Escatrol was marketed as a weight loss drug and consisted mostly of amphetamines. McDonald denied taking them the night of the murders, but it's hard to believe that that would happen in a regimented drug trial. He was also not sleeping much at the time and had lost considerable amount of weight. This suggests that he was taking the drug. Talk screens at the time did not test for amphetamines, so again, we are looking at conjecture. But Escatrol was eventually discontinued for the market due to some serious side effects, two being psychosis and violent rage. McGinnis suggests that the Escatrol was either the cause or a mitigating factor in McDonald that night. Honestly, it makes sense. There is just no proof. Additionally, McDonald was, 
and still is, so narcissistic and controlling that I believe he could have lashed out at Colette at any challenge to him she may have made. His hitting Kimberly by accident also makes sense. And the last thing that makes a Mad Hatter kind of sense is his decision to make it look like the Manson family were at his house. Nothing stands in his way. This is how he was going to handle his mistake. And he was going to make it happen, even if it meant killing everyone. MacDonald, however, professes his innocence. Of course, he didn't do this. And they appeal. If you think this tale is over, you are mistaken. This is the most litigated case in U.S. history. The next episode of this pod, we will talk the appeals. We will talk about his supporters, including the filmmaker Errol Morris, whose belief in Jeff's innocence prompted him to write a book of his own. If you like what you've heard, give us a follow. Tell your friends, rate the pod. Constructive comments are always welcome. Find me at Despecta or a variation on most of the things. Here are the eagles to send you on your way, and I'll see you next time on It's All Relative.